0: The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book, when you sign up for a 30-day free trial, at audiblepodcast.com/slash culturefest. And buy stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up the packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code CULTUREFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest, My Little Dictaphone Edition. It's Wednesday, April 9th, 2014. On today's show, The Unknown Known is the new Errol Morris documentary featuring interviews with the architect of the Iraq War, Donald Rumsfeld. And then Silicon Valley, it's the new HBO show from Mike Judge about the Uber nerds who build out our tech environs, presumably making dynastic fortunes along the way. And finally, Spritz, it's an app that claims it will revolutionize the way that you read. Joining me today is Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. You're the deputy editor of Slate. Clearly, I need to have The Way I Read revolutionized.
1: (laughs) Hi, Stephen. I thought that was pretty good.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Thank you. And uh, of course, Dana Stevens is uh, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. And just FYI, if you hear odd noises, I'm coming to you today from the upstate bureau of Slate.com in Ghent, New York. You may hear the cheep cheeping of little baby chicks in the background.
1: Aw, how come Dana and I don't get baby chicks? That
2: seems perfect for our first April show. Is this our first April show? No. Oh, okay. perfect for our second (laughs) April show.
0: Dana, you two are going to have The Way You Read uh, Revolutionized by the end of the show. All right. Anyway, Errol Morris is the maker of such documentaries as Thin Blue Line, Dr. Death and Fog of War. He somehow convinced former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld to sit for interviews, something like 34 hours of them. They have now been stitched together into the documentary, The Unknown Known. Why would Donald Rumsfeld do such a thing? It's an obvious question. And Errol Morris, thank God, asks it. It's actually the final question of the documentary. And I won't give the answer away. We can talk about, well, why would we watch it? Dana, I assume it's because Americans have come to regard this war as a debacle of false pretenses and bloodshed. And what we want to see is either agonized remorse or possibly a smoking gun of some sort, maybe, you know, totally screaming false consciousness. We want to see something dramatic enough to counterpoint the horrible drama of the war. Dana, I'm curious to know whether you think we get that from this movie. Do we get something more subtle and more satisfying or, or what? What was your reaction?
2: I think, Steve, that we get something that's both much more subtle and much less satisfying than the documentary you describe. I mean if you saw Fog of War, which was Errol Morris' Oscar winning documentary from two thousand four, I believe, about Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense during the Vietnam War, it's a completely different animal, even though structurally, formally, they're almost identical. It's Errol Morris sitting down across from this guy. There's no other talking heads brought in to talk about their impression of Rumsfeld or their memories of the war. It really is just a character portrait of this one person and focusing specifically on his involvement in this one war. And in the case of the McNamara documentary, you get essentially almost sort of a a moral... I don't know fairy tale I mean there's a there's a moment toward the end of that documentary where McNamara essentially admits that the war was a mistake and is grappling with his conscience that he was the architect of it. There's no such satisfaction in this documentary whatsoever and the fact that Errol Morse continues to sit with Rumsfeld for thirty four total hours of interviews while Rumsfeld continues his famously slippery obfuscation is I think what makes this documentary interesting but also probably very frustrating for those who are waiting for some satisfaction in, you know, the the story of, of the war.
0: Julia, what do you think? Uh, frustrating, satisfying, elliptical, rev- uh, revelatory. What adjective would you supply?
2: In a way,
1: watching this movie, it almost seems as though Donald Rumsfeld is a fictional creation designed to be the ideal subject for Errol Morris. I mean, Errol Morris is fundamentally interested in the question of what we can know and whether we can know it and how we know it And how storytelling sort of shifts the perspective on every memory that's recounted, right? Yeah. And to me, this movie actually seemed less a counterpart to Fog of War than the natural counterpoint to standard operating procedures, which we discussed on the show, which was Errol Morris's movie about what happened at Abu Ghraib. And to me, the most interesting part of this movie was the part where Donald Rumsfeld willfully refuses to grapple with his role in allowing those abuses to take place. But for Errol Morris to encounter... Someone whose most famous public utterance is about the unknown known, the known known, the known unknowns and the unknown knowns just seems too perfect a marriage. On the other hand, I'm not sure this is a satisfying movie viewing experience. It's fascinating, but you end up just kind of wanting to like prick Rumsfeld with a pin until he finally notices something happening in the world.
2: Yeah, it's very, very maddening to watch. And I wouldn't. Say, I think it's, it was on my second time watching it when I, was, I had no longer was holding out the hope that there would be some sort of McNamara revelation that I started to appreciate its artistry more and just its art as an interview. I mean, in spite of the fact that it doesn't dig out any revelations of truth, I think it shows you a lot about who Donald Rumsfeld is and how his mind works. You just may not be very happy to have someone whose mind works that way being, making the decisions that he made.
0: Right. I, I mean, I would call the movie in some ways, both a study of Donald Rumsfeld, the individual, but also a study in modern decision-making. It's on the one hand, media-driven, and on the other, uh, very bureaucratic. And both of these things together allow for someone with no real direct connection to the world to reshape the world, especially someone who runs the Pentagon. Uh, And by the world, one means the whole world, right? If you run the Pentagon, you are essentially manipulating the arm of empire uh, across the globe. And so imagination is critical when you wield that kind of power. Someone who has a moral imagination who has that power will use it in a different way from someone who suffers from a massive dearth of moral imagination. And what's terrifying about Rumsfeld is he's A, the poster child for that reality in some sense. He's shown as a kind of M- a Machiavellian bureaucratic insider whose talents are immense. He knows how to sort of quietly, in the most velvet of ways, dispense with a rival. George H.W. Bush, uh, having been a big one during the Ford administration. Uh, And then he's also someone who loves to manipulate language in front of a microphone. And that is very evident in the movie. He will say something. Morris will quite deftly allow for a very long pause in order to allow Rumsfeld to respond internally to what Rumsfeld has just said. And Rumsfeld will say it, will sit stone-faced, and within two or three seconds, this kind of pleased, Cheshire rictus of a smile will will dawn upon his own face, and he'll be enormously self-pleased with what he said. Why the
3: obsession with Iraq and Saddam? Well, you love that word, obsession. I can see the glow in your face when you say it. Well, I'm an obsessive person. Are you? I'm not. I'm, I'm uh, cool. I'm measured. If you look at the range of my memos, there might be one-tenth of one percent about Iraq. The reason I was concerned about Iraq is because four-star generals would come to me and say, Mr. Secretary, we have a problem. Our orders are to fly over the northern part of Iraq and the southern part of Iraq on a daily basis with the Brits, and we are getting shot at. At some moment, could be tomorrow, could be next month, could be next year, one of our planes is gonna be shot down, and our pilots and crews are gonna be killed or they're gonna be captured. The question will be, what in the world were we flying those flights for? What was the cost-benefit ratio? What was our country gaining? So you sit down and you say, I think I'm going to see if I can get the president's attention. Remind him that our planes are being shot at. Remind him that we don't have a fresh policy for Iraq. And remind him that we've got a whole range of options. Not an obsession. A very measured, nuanced approach. I
0: think the movie in some sense is a taxonomy of blind spots. That's what the title refers to. And Rumsfeld thought that he had a complete taxonomy of blind spots. And what's amazing about the irony and cutting about the irony of the movie is that Rumsfeld can't even get straight that taxonomy. He gets it completely wrong and says the complete opposite thing this time around, and then insists that the new one is better or right. And that's a perfect example of a man trapped in the labyrinth of his own words. So Dana, I agree with you that in terms of revelatory power, this movie is nowhere near the equal of the fog of war. In the same way, I mean, in a way we should be relieved about that because in some ways the tragedy, the magnitude of the tragedy, while immense in Iraq, pales in comparison to Vietnam. But it is a, nonetheless an interesting study in a man who thinks he's put out the perfect taxonomy of blind spots, right? That's what that bizarre Zen koan about known unknowns really is about. And in truth, he hasn't. In truth, he suffers from... A massive one still.
2: Well, I don't know, Steve, about your contention that the Vietnam War was more destructive than the Iraq War. I mean, in terms of sheer American casualties, it probably was. But if you start factoring in the Iraqi deaths and the damage to our economy and the wounded soldiers, I mean, the Iraq War is a pretty black mark against this country.
0: Oh, no one would deny that, Dana. I mean, it's a horrible thing to have to argue about. But I mean, some estimates of the Vietnam War is upwards of 4 million civilian uh, and military deaths in Southeast Asia. 50,000, 55,000 Americans dead. I mean, it just was a it was a larger war. It was a longer war. It went on for decades. I mean, it ravaged us at home in ways that we can't even get our heads around it anymore. I mean, that's, a, sh-
1: that's actually one thing that's interesting, I think, and one thing that seems sort of of a piece with Donald Rumsfeld's ability to kind of patly contain the tragedies of the Iraq War in some weird compartment of his own mind that he doesn't seem to have access to. In a weird way, it seems sort of parallel to the way that the Iraq War apart from a spurt of interest in it early on, just kind of dwindled in the American consciousness in a lot of ways, despite how horrifying it was. And one other thing that struck me about the interview is that the only moment where Rumsfeld loses his composure and seems less than utterly self-satisfied is a moment where he tears up when thinking about an American soldier he encountered, I think, at Walter Reed, who was wounded and who wasn't going to make it. The doctor said, but his wife was filled with steely determination that he would make it. And then Rumsfeld goes back and visits the soldier a few weeks later and finds that the soldier has, in fact pulled through. and Rumsfeld tears up at this. Now, you could argue that this is not, in fact, a moment of uncomposure from Rumsfeld, but in fact, a very cannily, supercomposed moment where he tries to show some emotion at the human toll his decisions have made. But for me, it was very interesting that he did not seem to be concerned when he talked about the abuses at Abu Ghraib, about the lives and souls and human element of the people who were actually tortured and shackled and abused and humiliated in that place. He seemed more concerned about it from a PR perspective or from the perspective of how it might damage the overall American war effort or the Bush administration. And the only actual human compassion he displayed is towards this American soldier. And it suggested to me there was just this utter compartmentalism in his mind between Americans and those in the rest of the world that felt dated and weird.
2: Yeah, I read a lot of of reviews and responses to the movie saying that those were crocodile tears when he told the Walter Reed story. I don't think they were crocodile tears. I think he was legitimately moved. But actually, when I spoke to Errol Morris on the phone last week, I interviewed him about this movie at length. And something we talked about for a while, but that didn't end up making it into the published interview was... About that Walter Reed story, about which we both agreed that it was the emblematic story that Donald Rumsfeld would be moved by. It essentially tells the narrative that he wants to tell about the war at large that he can't tell, right? Which is that a miracle happened and it all turned out all right. And it has this kind of optimism against all odds that is completely not emblematic of how that war proceeded or how most veterans' experiences proceed in in any way. And maybe that was why he holds on to that, you know, as something that he can believe in and be moved by. That's
0: fascinating. All right, Dana. Well, let's get to the subject of Errol Morris. He's truly one of the great documentarians right now, um, going now. Did you feel, as I felt maybe at moments in this movie, that this specific film demonstrated some of the limits of his method?
2: You mean that a different interviewer would have been able to get more out of Not Renzo? so much a
0: different interviewer, but a different technique. All right. So the Errol Morris technique is he uses that special machine so that the person being interviewed is looking at Errol Morris and yet is also looking directly into the camera, that they don't themselves feel the intrusion of the of the camera. There's no uh, voiceover. You you occasionally hear Errol Morris's questions, but rarely to the extent that there's any kind of um, backstory told or fill in. It's all done via newsreel and found uh, archival footage. At some point, I wanted, you know, Simon Shama to sort of pop in front of the camera or, you know, Schlesinger or something. I I kind of wanted wanted the old style PBS documentary, ham-handed as it is. I just wanted someone to pop out in front of the camera and tell me something about how history had unfolded, what the ironies and ambiguities were, in part because I was frustrated not with Errol Morris, but Donald Rumsfeld.
2: Yeah, I can understand. I've definitely had documentary moments where I'm dying for exactly that. Like, please just give me David Ogden Stiers on PBS, (laughs) you know, remotely narrating some sort of American experience because I don't understand this thing. And in relation to this movie, I think I didn't want that because... I wanted the thing that Errol Morris can bring that no one else can. I don't know that anyone else would have had the patience to sit there for 34 hours with Donald Rumsfeld, wanting to probably throttle him every second and continue to ask him good questions about his career in the war. I mean, maybe that kind of documentary should exist in concert with this one so that you can learn more about different perspectives on how the war proceeded. But he's interested here in Donald Rumsfeld's perspective and experience. And if that Mm -hmm. yields nothing but this kind of yawning void of emptiness, then he wants to explore the yawning void.
1: Yeah, there were moments where I wanted a little bit more information and exposition, but the movie actually does manage to shoehorn in a fair amount with some elegant infographics that dynamically portray civilian death rates. And, you know, it it had a pretty elegant approach to that sort of thing with kind of clever animations. And so it did offer a lot of information. The the one moment... Where I really wanted to know more is the hallmark of the documentary is that Errol Morris convinces Donald Rumsfeld to reread his memos. He was an amazing memo writer. So it juxtaposes Donald Rumsfeld reading the words he wrote in the moment with the way he feels about them now. And there's a flurry of memos he wrote expressing concern about detainee procedures in the run-up to the revelations about Abu Ghraib. And it's totally unclear what he was concerned about, whether he was genuinely concerned about how detainees were being treated or whether he was concerned about the possible public exposure of those abuses. That was a mystery to me. Well, you mean
2: he was generating the memos? Because well, I saw some of the ones where he's responding, the famous moment that he notates, the I think, the John Yu memo about torture with what's wrong with standing for four hours a day when no, the, I stand at my desk.
1: The moment where he says... Um, There's a passage where Earl Morris has him read a flurry of memos from late 2003 and early 2004, uh, where he's asking people, please be prepared to brief the president on Tuesday about detainee. I'm very concerned about detainee procedures. And, And the words are kind of fluttering down into a black hole. There's this... And clearly there was some flurry of Rumsfeldian interest in the question of detainees at that moment, and it's impossible to know what his motive was. And
2: that, yeah, the that, question would be the timeline, right? Was he responding to some revelations or was he actually trying to nip something in the bud?
1: Yeah, that was a moment where I felt like the, the Morrisian technique showed its limits. But in some, I... I'm so glad Errol Morris exists in the world and is asking questions and making movies. It's always more interesting to go where he takes you, I think, than where almost any other documentarian working does.
0: Um, all right. Well, the movie is The Unknown Known. It is uh, from the director, Errol Morris. Check it out. Ambivalence, is as a it's an absolutely essential thing. Uh, people should watch it. And I should add, it's completely watchable at home. It's on both Amazon Instant for six or seven bucks and iTunes. Check it out and come to our Facebook page. Tell us what you thought about it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have?
1: Steve, the post office is always crowded, as you know, as Donald Rumsfeld would no doubt know if he had actually tried to personally mail all those snowflakes of memos to everybody he ever sent them to. And this week, it will be more crowded than ever because people will be mailing in their taxes But if you still need to get out envelopes and packages for your business or your taxes, you should use Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using your computer and printer, and then just hand it to your mailman. Stamps.com even sends you a free digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. And the scale is yours to keep. You'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, you can use our promo code CULTUREFEST for this special offer, a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 worth of free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in CULTUREFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter CULTUREFEST. All right, Steve, what's next? What's next?
0: Okay, well, moving on. Silicon Valley is the new HBO comedy from Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and the great movie Office Space. Uh, his new show is about a hapless, low-in-the-pecking-water nerd at a giant Silicon Valley tech company who, almost unbeknownst to himself, comes up with a miraculous bit of code. Will it turn him into a gazillionaire? Will he take his sad sack incubator buddies along for the ride? Will he get hot women, the hot women, or will he get fleeced? Oh, the comedy. Let's, uh, let's listen to a clip from the show, and then we'll discuss.
3: So... What do you got? Okay, here it is. Bit soup. It's like alphabet soup, but it's ones and zeros instead of the letters. Because <laughs> it's binary. You know, binary is just ones and zeros. Yeah, I know so. what binary is. Jesus Christ, I memorized the hexadecimal times tables when I was 14 writing machine code. Okay? Ask me what nine times F is. It's FLE seventy-five. 5 I do not need you telling me what binary is, just like I don't need you thinking about soup or taking pictures of it. I need you thinking about apps, software, websites. This is Silicon Valley, all right? Not Paris, Texas. That's where Campbell's Soup is.
2: All right, that is not maybe the, the funniest clip from the pilot, but what I do like about it is that it features the voice of T.J. Miller, the guy who tells us about Fleventy Five as, a, as an equation result. And I think T.J. Miller as this character, Ehrlich Bachman, who's a sort of wannabe Steve Jobs visionary, but is actually just sort of a big galoot with no social skills, is one of the better characters in the show. I just somehow feel like we've, we've all known an Ehrlich Bachman in our
0: lives. Oh, my God, I've waited so long to hear Dana Stevens say the word galoot. <laughs>
2: I mean, maybe this is just me. I have a huge soft spot for Mike Judge, okay? I think Steve and I agree that Beavis and Butthead is one of the great satirical achievements of the 90s. I also think King of the Hill is a hugely underrated show. I like his live action a little bit less than his animation, but I stuck with Silicon Valley. I had a five-CD set of, you know, the ones that they released to the press and sat there and watched one after the other like popcorn. I mean, it's not a perfect show, but it made me laugh out loud hard, at least once per episode.
1: Yeah, there are definitely funny moments in it. And I think we have to give Willa Paskin credit for first referring to that character as a galoot in her Slate Review.
2: Oh, that's where the word came oh, from. Theft. Oh, no. Oh. Unintentional Paskin plagiarism.
1: She's, she's She's oh, the original galootifier. Um, but it's the perfect word, for sure, for that character who's one of the most fun. I, who am not usually at a loss for words, and slightly struck with a uh, lack of analytical insight when it comes to this show— One thing that's interesting in reading the response to it is that most people agree it's pretty funny, but people seem to disagree about whether it is a penetrating or interesting satire of Silicon Valley or not, whether its goal is to skewer and pick at the peccadillos of our coming tech overlords, or whether the show is simply set in a place with a lot of funny brand names and goofy looking offices and pompous twits who, you know, have been the subject of comedy dating back for centuries and remain comedic in this day. And I think I lean towards the notion that this is a show that does not have very many interesting things to say about Silicon Valley, but is doing a fine and fun job of of mining the territory for yucks. Steve, what did you make of it?
0: Well, first of all, I really liked it. Like Dana, I would have consumed much more of it, but I didn't have the five CD pack. I thought the humor was sharp. Part of the problem is you're writing a satire about people who suffer from, I mean, they're kind of on the spectrum a little bit. And the comedy derives from the fact that they're so profoundly antisocial, but also incredibly smart, but smart in this narrow way. However, that narrow way creates our common virtual reality and makes them incredibly rich. Like the opening set piece is about them at a party for someone very like them except that person has made it and so Kid Rock plays the party and thinks that he's playing for a bunch of checked out douchebags and it's all the stuff that we imagine about Silicon Valley paraded in front of us now that raises a couple of interesting questions first how long can you stick with something that tells that joke over and over again? Are we going to go into a third dimension with these characters, which I actually thought happened a little bit at the end of the first episode. The galoot surprises us in a way that made me think, okay, if this turns into at least a quasi-human drama, I might really stick with it for the long term, and, and, as opposed to just checking it out every now and then like Portlandia. And then the, the second question it raises is the one that Julia was alluding to, which is, is Silicon Valley getting the satire that it deserves in this telling kind of these jokes over and over and over again, or is something about the nature of Silicon Valley being missed? Like, is it more interesting various place than this satire can really comprehend? And what I thought was interesting about that was just you have Peter Thiel being sent up by this character, Peter Gregory. You know, he's a total libertarian. He thinks that going to college is a complete waste of time, and that's become a pathological point of obsession for Teal in real life. That's being sent up in the show, which I thought was a good choice. I've always wondered about why Teal is so obsessive about this. The show wonders about why its character, Peter Gregory, is so obsessive about this. I thought that was kind of funny. Farhad in The Times thinks that it's pretty accurate and pretty funny. Julia, you kind of have a horse in this race, maybe a little bit. Slate published a piece uh, from someone who hates it on just this score says it's inaccurate.
1: That's right. Steve David Auerbach, who writes our Bitwise column and worked as a developer for years at Microsoft and Google um, and is intimately familiar with this world, wrote a piece for Slate this week utterly detesting the show and pointing out a number of things that it got wrong. In particular, he took issue with the show's portrayal of the gender politics of Silicon Valley. Uh, Willa Paskin, in her review, suggested that the show's lack of female characters was merely a reflection of the gender dynamics in Silicon Valley, but Auerbach contested that slightly and suggested that the show maybe could have more female characters than the one charming, warm, brown-eyed brunette who seems destined to become a love interest for somebody. But I have found in general that the mode of critique of the show, which is people from within the world assess whether it is an accurate satire of their world, it's sort of interesting to read that stuff, but that's not really the hallmark of success of the show. Veep doesn't work as a comedy because lots of White House staffers say that it does it either has the ring of comedic truth or not and i I think it may be too soon to say whether this show has interesting ideas for us about the way technology gets made and the way it shapes our lives
2: yeah it just strikes me that everybody who has a major bone to pick with this show about the way it shows the tech world is somebody who's from the tech world and who thus in some way is having their their way of life satirized on screen and as with the social network which people decried right left and center for not. Accurately getting the, the internet, it didn't really matter to me. I just want it to be good drama and good comedy, and so far, this I think the show is. I have I have one final
1: utterly goofy
2: note.
0: <laughs> Let's hear it,
2: Steve.
1: You keep pronouncing it Silicon Valley, or as I pronounce it Silicon Valley. I, which of us
2: is correct, Dana? Be the tiebreaker. <laughs> silicon, Silicon. I think I go with Con, but I don't know. Mm. I think that's it. That's probably one that could go either way.
0: You're such a suck up, Dana. <laughs>
2: always splitting the difference all right let's ask the listeners
0: oh boo all right well the show is called silicon valley it's from mike judge uh creator of uh office space and uh, beavis and butthead and many other wonderful things dana what's that great movie he made idiocracy yeah anyway check it out tell us what you think of it okay moving on Julia, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. What do we have?
1: Our sponsor this week is Audible.com, which, as our listeners know, is the Internet's leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment on the Internet. They have more than 150,000 titles available, everything from current bestsellers to classic works. And you can listen to them on almost any electronic device, including, no doubt, whatever it is you're using to listen to us Right now, Audible has a special deal for our listeners. If you go to audiblepodcast slash culturefest, you can sign up for a free monthly trial which will give you one free audiobook and thirty days to experiment with the service. We have a special addition to what we're calling the Culture GabFest bucket list. This is our list of classic works that you must read before you die in order to be someone suitable to show up at a culture dinner party and have an interesting conversation. So it's time to get reading or get listening. These books are all available on Audible. Steve, what is our addition to the pile today?
0: All right. I think this week, uh, Julia, we're going to go with Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. It's uh, one of the great nonfiction works of all time, but certainly one of the great contributions to American letters. Not only do you get a history of the Mississippi and remarkable anecdotes about Twain's own experience on the river, a slice of American history, you also get a great American writer describing how he became himself, how from he made the transition from Samuel Clemens to being Mark Twain. Uh, Mark Twain being what they called out on the river, uh, marking the twain of the river. So it's completely indispensable.
1: How did I not know that fact until now? I had no idea that's where that name came from. Really? I knew, I knew that he was Samuel Clemens, but I didn't. That's crazy to me. Yeah, it's a riverboat cry. That's, yeah. that's uh, all right. Well, now, now I'm that much more suitable to show up to a dinner party, I suppose. That sounds like a great one. Who, who reads it?
0: Uh, well, looking here on the, on the webpage of Audible, they have several different versions of it, at least three or four. One seems to be by Michael Pritchard, another by Peter Burkrot. So you get a bunch of choices. Seems like it comes in at about 15, 16 hours. Steve, what, what is it that you like so much about the book? I've never read it.
1: (laughs) You've never read it? Wait, Steve, how, you, you need to go back
2: in time and listen to it before you even start doing this podcast. How have you
0: been showing up here
2: week after week? I think the, the bucket list will be Hypocritical if the bucket list doesn't include some things that we all should read
0: as well. Dana, you nailed it. That's exactly right. I mean, uh, to me, one of the signal experiences of life is feeling the burden of not having read X, and that's huge because it's it's lifting off that burden that motivates you to go read, you know, Wittgenstein or Montaigne or uh, or Life on the Mississippi. I've read a ton of Mark Twain back in my days as a grad student an immense amount and just for some reason never made it to life in the Mississippi and that is it's this thing that needs to be you know removed it's the it's the moat from my eye it's the it's the monkey on my back but but that's in a good way.
1: All right. I'm persuaded. My objection is withdrawn. So again, for listeners, our special deal is from Audible. If you go to com slash culturefest, you can sign up for our free monthly trial, which gives you 30 days free, one free audio book, which you can use to listen to Life on the Mississippi or any of the other Culture Gab Fest bucket lists or whatever else you'd like to download. Um, they also give you a trial subscription to a daily audio digest from the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, which Gail Collins recently fest on the political gab fest to listening to every morning on her way into work at the Times. She listens to the Times Audio Digest, which makes me feel better about the fact that I spend my free hours away from all you people listening to all the other Slate podcasts. Anyhow, it's audiblepodcast.com slash culture Check it out. Download it. Give it a shot today. All right, Steve, Uh, apropos, our next topic is about reading, is it not?
0: It is. uh, Reading is the sacred intersection, Julia, between the privacy, silence, contemplation of an author and the privacy, silence, and contemplation of a sympathetic reader. That's what you think if you're Stephen Metcalf. If you're Spritz, you think... Reading is a sinkhole of inefficiency, and using their patented technology, you may be able to read Atlas Shrugged in under 10 hours. First prize, by the way, is not reading it at all. Um, <laughs> Juliet, this is, this is one of those topics that I, I'm convinced you select just to bait me into revealing my worst, most obnoxious, and snottiest self. I didn't uh, select
1: this topic. You thought
0: th- <laughs> th- you that chose that it. It
1: was prompted by our intern to have you no know, reading comprehension of the meeting we were all in <laughs> together.
0: Don't bedevil me with facts, woman. The <laughs> thought of having my eyes spritzed with "To the Lighthouse" uh, is going to turn me into
2: <laughs> Virginia <laughs> the, Wolf in spray form. <laughs> yes, exactly. uh,
0: ode to Wolf. <laughs> ode Wolf. Yeah, exactly. It's going to turn me into the uh, uh, into the exact culture snob every all our listeners have mistaken me for all these years. I, I charge you guilty as charged julia turn to defend thyself
1: okay well so first let's describe what spritz is okay so our listeners have a have a ballpark before we start our knockdown, drag out brawl so spritz is a new reading technology um based on a at least decades old idea which is that the experience of reading written words laid out left to right in lines on a page is inefficient because your eye must hop do 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 left to right, jump back to the to the next line, scan. You you know this feeling. Your eyes are, are darting back and forth along the page. Think of the wasted seconds that all those <laughs> those eye darts engender. So for several decades, there has been a notion that instead of darting our eyes along the page, we should look at a static area on the screen and have the words show up as serial flashing blinks of light um, so that our eyes don't have to scan and the words can just kind of flash at us subliminally. Uh, And then Spritz applies and refines this idea with a new reading technology that centers the word around what they call an optimal reading point so that, that your eyes can really fully focus and just have all of Atlas shrugged or whatever other work beamed directly into your cornea. The Spritz website allows you to demo this technology and shows what it's like to read text at 300 words a minute, which feels fairly slow and comprehensible, and then allows you to try samples up to, I think, 650 words a minute, which begins to feel a little bit hasty. Um, And it's kind of a fascinating technology, I thought. I was not immediately repulsed by it, but it seems that Steve was. Dana, were
2: you? Well, put it this way, I don't think Spritz is going to take over the world. I don't think it's going to be the Silicon Valley innovation that makes some bunch of guys in an incubator get filthy rich. I can't imagine that this is going to be the technology that makes us read differently or faster. But maybe it is the case that such a technology will develop. And I guess it could be interesting to talk about what that will mean. To me, this just seemed like it left out so many obvious advantages to having a text spread in front of you, which without even getting nostalgic about, you know, paper binding or codexes or the Gutenberg Bible, we could safely say. And one of them is that reading speed varies from moment to moment depending on the circumstances of your reading, how well you're understanding it, how tired you are. You know, so the idea that you are setting some speed, be it slow or fast, and saying this is how fast I want words to be fed into my eyeballs is just a complete misapprehension of what it is to have your eyes dart across a page. They're not laboriously darting across a page doing this arduous work of moving. They are gathering meaning as they go. So in that sense, the darting time is the reading time. I don't see how it's wasted. Yeah. I mean, I did find that it was very easy to comprehend the sentences
1: flashing at me at ever faster speeds with one exception. Spritz has a made up word that they've used called the reticle, R-E-D-I-C-L-E, which is the rectangle in which the written material that you're trying to read goes into your eyeballs. It's a little oblong at the top of the page where the words flash up. It's not a word I'd encountered before. Maybe it's a word you guys know. I think it's a made-up, like, tech buzzword. And so in the very fastest or second-fastest thing available on their site, they start talking about the reticle in the speed text. And I was feeling really good about myself because of how – just goddamn fast I was reading everything they were flashing at me and having ambitious notions of how I was going to have read Life on the Mississippi by the end of lunchtime and um, then they start throwing reticle at me and I was thinking retina, retinue, ridicule like what the <laughs> hell like and I lost the script and then 20 words had flashed by and I was like shit what the hell and I played it again and I couldn't figure out I never got the word I was never able to comprehend it because it's not a word in my vocabulary Well there you go
2: right right I mean if you're if you're really reading something that's challenging and interesting and presumably teaching you anything at all then there's going to be a moment that your eyes have to go back and look at a word. And maybe you have to look up that word or look at what it means in the context. So the idea that reading is just sort of a tennis ball machine spewing words at you one by one just just seems like we would have to completely rewire our brains to read in that way. I mean, of course, we haven't even gotten into the question of why do we all have to read Life at the Mississippi during lunchtime? Well, we have to because otherwise Steve won't have dinner with you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. The notion that
1: the way we read, which is a relic of the technology we've used for reading for years, might be changed in the digital world seems totally fine to me. I'm completely open to the idea of it. But And and I liked the idea that using a technology like Spritz might have a focusing effect. I mean, I think we've all had this experience. We're so used to Twitter and jumping around between 20 web pages and answering half of an email and then going to look at my Gmail on the other screen. And, you know, the, the sitting down with a long blank page and an empty brain and just focusing on it and continuously reading through one text can sometimes feel harder to focus on than it used to in my life. And the notion that it might be somewhat focusing to kind of zero in on this window, this reticle on a page, I was interested to try a longer, or more ambitious text. But it doesn't feel like it's there yet unless there's some kind of speed dial that you can use or backup option to kind of rewind a little bit. And one other thing that I didn't like is the inability to distinguish paragraphs. I mean, I wasn't reading a long text, but for me, the paragraph is an incredible useful way to organize information and ideas even when I'm editing a piece sometimes if it's long and thorny and it needs a um, kind of a, a logistical reorganization I'll often print it out very very small in a ten point font in two column format so that I'm fundamentally seeing the text as a grouping of paragraphs and I can kind of move those around i mean i I like to to have my vision encompass the whole of a text rather than just its granular bits particularly when I'm editing so I think there's hope for a version of this technology, but it doesn't seem like it's there yet.
0: Yeah, Julia, I completely agree. I mean, you don't have to be a Gutenberg fetishist like Dana and I are in order to think that this is there's something a little silly about this. But I am a Gutenberg fetishist, so I'd like to attack it from that angle first, which is that, you know, the what happened to the just pleasure of, like, your copy of Nicholas Nickleby or Martin Chuzzlewit or Being in Time or, you know, there's something about a the heft of a book that represents the length of time, like physically in your hand, the actual weight of it has a corollary in the amount of time that you're going to spend actually living with it and reading it. Therefore, it's, it's a companion. It's meant to be both physically and in the theater of your mind, a companion to yourself over time. So there's the Gutenberg fetish uh, line. I just don't think that you're ever going to read a serious novel, not even Atlas Shrugged, in this format. But then the second thing is when you're reading informationally, Julia, exactly right. So then it becomes purely spatial, and and you do want to print it out or at least have a spatial metaphor for paragraphs in specific places that need to be moved or rearranged or broken down and examined depending on what you know purpose informational purpose you're trying to serve. Uh, I don't see how you could ever achieve that with this. I mean, the only thing I can think of is, like, these people are attempting to create something for a Google Glass. They hope Google will buy it, and one day the kind of, you know, Dork who goes around Google Glassed up will use this as a way on the little Google van to read huge volumes of research reports that are mostly data, uh informationally data driven. A piece you know, and, and it's just a way to kind of upload information uh into your brain, but very uncritically.
1: I don't know. I'm not sure it has to be uncritical, although thinking about you uploading research reports, it's interesting to think how a chart would play into this, right? Or if you, poetry. If you wanted to do any kind of text interspersed with a chart. And yeah, I was just thinking about the same thing. Poetry, for example, is a place where you see words in a spatial context, and that's totally fundamental to what you're doing. I also will object to the technology as the delicate wilting flower that I am. I have extremely sensitive eyes. I'm not sure if you guys know that or or you know my my pale blue eyes are just incredibly sensitive to sunlight and I have to wear dark sunglasses every time I go outside and my optometrist is very concerned about my delicate retinas. But I actually found the experience of using Spritz much more taxing for my eyes than the experience of reading on a page, especially on a bright screen that's emitting a ton of light. The experience of having my eyes motionless on that rectangle for however many minutes I played with the technology on the site, I found as soon as I closed it out and tried to look at the rest of the world, there was this hovering dark rectangle. You know, you get that after image when you stare at one thing in a fixed way for too long. And that after image hovered on my burnt retinas for like 10 minutes. I was like having trouble reading and looking at my email. So I think the motion that your eyes make darting across the page in some ways protects your retinas. And of course, also, it's better to look at reflective light bouncing off of a page often than to look at super bright digital screens. I mean, I'm someone who really dislikes the increasing retina display of the eye devices because I feel like they're the retina killing displays. They're getting so absurdly bright. Nobody needs something to be that bright. I keep having my phone on the lowest setting and wishing there were a setting that was three times lower than it. So in terms of protecting your eyes, that all seemed like complete hogwash to my... Complete
2: hogwash. I mean, I feel like reading developed the way that it did over millennia for a reason, you know, and we are not used to staring straight at a page and having it fed at us for a reason because our brain circuitry has by this point evolved and in every individual life from babyhood on evolves to read while moving your eyes. The idea that suddenly in your mid-30s you would have somebody start throwing brightly lit words one by one into your eyeballs and then it would be analogous to the experience of reading seems to me insane.
0: But, Dana, you know as well as I do that that's not the way technology assimilates into the culture. It doesn't go via 35-year-olds. You know, uh, it goes via... The young and and it'll go it'll skew younger and younger and younger until this is the way young people actually learn to read. I, I, I'm not being dystopic. I don't think that's actually going to happen. But
2: it's just not it's not a good enough app. Maybe that will happen, but I don't think it's going to happen because of Spritz. But could we talk a little bit, guys, about whether we're slow or fast readers and how you feel about reading speed in general? Oh, uh,
1: I feel like my own personal garden of Eden is that in my youth I used to be able to just devour books whole in in nanoseconds and then somehow. I lost it. I don't know what Apple I bit wrong where, but I am just have become the slowest goddamn reader, and it's really annoying because I think of myself as a fast reader, so I'm perpetually frustrated by how slow I'm turning through books. And I'm also married to a very fast reader who has to read a lot for a living, and he's always just flipping pages blithely next to me as I snarl in frustration at my own slow, sluggish incompetence. What about you guys?
0: I'm medium. I'm not a super fast reader. I mean, I can be... When I focus in, I can go pretty quick. And it also depends on what I'm reading for precisely. But there are definitely nonfiction books that, you know, I'm using as a source or a resource for writing my own book. And I can get through them in volume. I mean, but uh, if I'm reading a novel or anything with any savor to it at all, and it's not, it's not even because I'm, I'm savoring it. I just tend to go slowly and reread and I get lost easily. I, I don't have the world's greatest attention span.
2: You know, I feel like I had the same trajectory as Julia, except that I'm happy about it. I used to be a very fast reader, and as a kid was definitely, you know, just as fast as I could go through every book in sight. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school and started to meet and know people who were much slower and much better readers than me that I realized that slowing down your reading speed can be a huge advantage, especially when you're reading poetry or literature or something, theory, something that's difficult and inaccessible. So I think now, when I'm re- especially when I'm reading something hefty, I make a conscious effort to slow down, not just to scan my eyes across the page and say, that page is done with, but to to sort of ask myself, you know, could I summarize that in a sentence or two? I also feel like I, one reason that my reading has slowed down
1: is I started reading things that were more complicated than Nancy Drew books and I am incapable of skimming. I hate skimming. I really, and this is also why I never finished any of the Lord of the Rings books even though I read widely in you know, young adult fantasy when I was a kid. I'm sure I'm going to get flack for calling Lord of the Rings young adult fantasy, but I'm going to stick with that because there are all those epic and super boring descriptions of random, like, dark forests that just take forever. <laughs> and I, t- I talked to people at the time who were like, hey, you just got to skim all those boring descriptions and you get to the plot. And I could never do it because I refuse to skim. I- and I hate skimming. And I think that's part of also why my reading has gotten slower and part of why I worry about an app like Spritz because I feel like. If you're just locked in at 400 and then they throw a lot of reticles at you like, and there's no way to rewind, then you're just by definition going to be skimming these terms you don't know and aren't familiar with. I mean, think about trying to read a book like Lord of the Rings where every other word is some like new made up land and you have to get context. So, OK, that's the place across the river where the thing is that they need the thing for. Like, it would be hard to do that. In, right. And in spatial perception world.
2: of the page is, is a very key part of doing that, right? That novel effect that you have where you say, wait a second, I'm on page 120 and I forgot who Tom is, right? And you have to go back and find the first entrance of Tom, the character, into the book. I mean, I guess you could, you'd could you be able to do that with a, a search for the word Tom. But to me, spatial perception of the page layout is <laughs> crucial for figuring out who Tom is.
0: I love the thought of doing a search in a spritz document for the word Tom. <laughs> And then it just sends the word Tom at you 80 times in a row, like super fast. In your fast. reticle. Yeah, you get reticled by Tom. All right. Well, the technology is called Spritz. You can go to their website. Its URL is Spritz, Inc. That's with a C dot com. Uh, check it out. Tell us what you think the future of reading is at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Okay. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have?
2: Okay, I'm going to endorse a fairly dense long read this week, something best not read in a spritz reticle. Um, it's it's an essay by Michael Markham, who's a music professor at one of the SUNY campuses, on a new uh, book about Bach that just came out. So uh, having just read a big, thick, chunky biography of Bach and feeling like while well, I learned a lot about the time that he lived in, and I learned a little bit about music, I still felt like I had read all the way through without understanding how did this person create this incredible music, which was the reason that I read it in the first place. So then I come across this wonderful essay in an LA review of books by Michael Markham that takes me through it and talks all about the perils of Bach biography and of biography of composers in general, and sort of really takes on some big critical questions of how do you write a biography of someone who lived in a completely different time with a completely different set of cultural values? And specifically, he talks about how at the beginning of the Romantic period, we start to understand composers as artists, right? That we we see um, Beethoven, for example, or, or Wagner, people from this period as creators, you know, and, and we want to hear about their biographies. As soon as we go back a little bit further in time and music is more co- connected as it was in Bach's case, to church bureaucracies and, you know, sort of churning out music on deadline, there's less of a sense of an intimate connection of the biography to the music. And the way he talks through that would be fascinating, I think, for somebody who cares nothing about musical biographies, cares nothing about Bach, just sort of cares about intellectual history. He does a a beautiful job. And it is a long read, but it's completely worth bookmarking and going back to over the course of a few days. So it's called Bach Psychology, Gothic, Sublime, or Just Human. And it appears in the LA Review of Books from a few weeks ago, but you can find it on their website, L.A reviewofbooks.org.
0: Oh, cool. Um, uh, Julia, what do you got?
1: I'm going to recommend a truly amazing book of poetry that is simultaneously a great book of poetry and the most illuminating thing I've read about the war in Afghanistan, I think, ever. It's called I Am the Beggar of the World, Landays from Contemporary Afghanistan, translated by Eliza Griswold with photographs by Seamus Murphy. And Eliza Griswold is a, is a very interesting writer. She's a poet and also a foreign correspondent, basically. Um, and there's a form of kind of lay folk poetry in Afghanistan among Pashtun women in particular called the landay, which is a rhymed couplet that can be sort of body and sexual or a lamentation of grief. Sometimes they're a little bit political, and they tend to be exchanged in private among women. They're not public. And it's kind of a folky way of communicating with each other. And uh, in a really remarkable feat of intellectual and cultural reporting, Eliza Griswold met a number of these women, convinced them to share the landays with her, worked to translate them into English, um, and has presented them here with a series of essays about how they fit into contemporary Afghan life, and along with just some gorgeous photographs of, of what modern life in Afghanistan is like. And it's just this stunning portrait of where The recent American war in Afghanistan and also the prior decades of war and invasion and and, uh, trauma and tumult have left people in Afghanistan and particularly women who are in a particularly fraught and fragile situation there and who may be more at risk than anyone else uh, as Americans finally fully withdraw Uh, So I can't recommend it highly enough. A lot of it originally appeared in a really wonderful edition of Poetry Magazine, and it's been expanded and rejiggered slightly for this this
0: book edition.
1: Again, it's I Am the Beggar of the World, Land Days from Contemporary Afghanistan. That sounds great.
0: Mm. God, that sounds amazing. Okay, very briefly, uh, this week I'm going to endorse uh, the Mark Danner series of essays about Dick Cheney in the New York Review of Books. I believe they're all available online to non-subscribers. Certainly most of them are. It came to mind because I was watching the Errol Morris documentary in frustration, again, not at Errol Morris, but at Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, And it did make me want for an authoritative, historically uh, contextualized voice to describe what happened to us as a culture, as a society, thanks to this man's total lack of moral imagination well this is exactly what mark danner's uh, series of essays does about cheney who in some ways is the more shakespearean figure than rumsfeld in a way there's at least something identifiably internal and conflicted and in, in my estimation quite dark about cheney and this is what these essays are about uh, i think it's very satisfying uh, uh and very intelligent uh, essay reportage and highly recommended all right well thanks dana thanks steve Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, Slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, Facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Anna Schechtman. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers, and our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll we'll see you soon. Springtime, springtime can kill you just like a did for me. Don't you see the are all of the same way? So get out, so get out of your house. All right, babies. Oh. <laughs>
1: I'm just going to picture those those tender little chicks as your delicate, historically inclined sensibility. Every time I argue with you about the crushing, innovative reality, yeah, of the future. Yeah, just huge little
2: cheap cheap of Steve's inner chick.
1: That's your Gutenberg-loving self tenderly living in its cultural incubator.